This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Jennifer Risher, author of We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth, just out from Zeno Books. I met Jennifer online when she consulted me about her manuscript a few years ago, and then I saw her and her book featured in a big New York Times piece a few weeks ago at the time of the book's publication, and I was thrilled by the coverage. Jennifer joined Microsoft in 1991 and with her husband experienced the financial upswing of the dot-com boom. By their early 30s, they had tens of millions of dollars. What you may not know is that there are millions of people like them. So in terms of marketing to a group of book buyers, this book could have been written solely for those people. But it's not. It's written for us all, since she definitely takes on the taboo of talking about money. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Marianne. Nice to be here. I'm delighted. So didn't an earlier draft of your book have the word taboo in the title? It did, yes. Um, You know, when I started out to write this book, it was 14 years ago, <laughs> and I thought I'd write a book in a year. And actually, the, my first title was Embarrassment of Riches. Mm. And I worked on, on that title for many, many years, and then the book became The Tiniest Violin. And from there, <laughs> it was It's Not About the Money, and then it became Confessions of a Rich Woman. And then when, when, I, when I was... Uh, lucky enough to work with you, it was The Last Taboo. Yeah. And from there, it turned into what we don't talk about when we don't talk about money. And then finally landed on We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. Oh, I love you telling us that. The honesty there suggests to the listeners that we're going to get lots more of such honesty. And you are, because that's just the I know from working with you, that's how you are. So the acceptance that this took a long time and that it morphed during that time. Is that part of talking about this tough topic? This one is taboo. Is part of why it's so hard to talk about money? Is that part of why it took 14 or so years to write this book? (laughs) Is is you, you learning along the way what you were really talking about? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I guess it really started out me trying to figure figure things out for myself, sort of a form of therapy to start writing. It is a tricky topic. How do you write about money in a way that isn't off-putting or offensive, especially when you're writing about having a lot of it? Mm-hmm. So it's tricky. So yeah, it took time. I mean, I, I'm part of the time it took me to write was really me teaching myself to write. So, you know, in addition to kind of grappling with how to talk about money, it was how do I piece together my experiences in a way that's compelling? It felt like a puzzle Mm -hmm. to me. And it was a puzzle that I loved. So, you know, I hear writers worrying about like, oh, how, you know, I have to sit at my desk for X number of hours or I have to force myself into, you know, every day at three or I really woke up and ran to my computer to try and 
fit this puzzle together. That's wonderful to know because I run into all manners of writers writing about all manners of tough topics in my editing and coaching world. And whether it be addictions, abuse, bad decision making, it runs the gamut of human behavior. But we're taking, sometimes knowing we're taking on a tough topic can color the reporting and the writing. But what you're saying in your case is it actually got you to dig down and figure out what you thought about it. And I think that's a wonderful thing for people to know. I always tell people that memoir is the single greatest portal to self-discovery, but you're kind of testifying to that effect. So that's fascinating. But why is money so hard to write about? Well, you know, it's an emotional topic. We don't tend to think we think of numbers as being not emotional, but actually it's it's a lot more than numbers. And yeah, the more I kind of dug into it, the more I realized, you know, I need to get to those emotions. And, you know, with mm-hmm. memoir, I guess the more you can kind of really touch on your own truth and share that, the more universal it ends up being. So I really worked hard to kind of be honest with myself about my experiences and figure out kind of what it meant to me, what I really felt about things. And yeah, money is very, very emotional. We, all of us have a money story and it starts in childhood and we learn all sorts of approaches and perspectives and expectations around money Mm -hmm. and the emotions we have. I mean, it's, it's pretty universal when it comes to trying to talk about money. I think we have a lot of fear a fear of being rejected, of of hurting other people's feelings, of not measuring up, of not sounding unknowledgeable. And I'm hoping that my book will help all of us move through those fears and get a little bit uncomfortable and, and examine our own relationships with money so that we can communicate and connect with each other in ways that we're not right now. Right. Yeah, the truth that you tell, the truths that you tell are so important to the story. You published a piece, a pre-publication piece in Psychology Today about wrestling with wealth in which you reveal that you were a child who grew up in a home where tea bags were used three times. And you talked about how saving gave you a sense of self-worth and value as a responsible daughter and that it made you feel worthy of your parents' love, saving. And that as you gained worth in your adulthood, nothing less than your identity became at stake. So that is a fascinating amount of truth to come to. And in the process of your writing this, it seems like you figured that out. Did the figuring out lead you to do reporting outside? I mean, I know it did. So let's talk about figuring it out in the large sense. You did a lot of reporting for this book. So why don't you give people a sense of who you talk to, to build this sense of this argument you have about identity and self-worth and how you can find a new sort of genuine home to live in vis-a-vis one's worth. Um, Who did you talk to? Who did you interview? You know, the interviews came really towards the end of my writing process. A lot of it was, you know, me and me (laughs) and thinking these things through and really (laughs) grappling, grappling with this issue of identity. Because, yeah, I, I got a lot of my sense of purpose and meaning from you know, circling the block until I could find a free parking spot and not paying too much for raspberries because they were out of season and you know, not paying an ATM fee. And even when I suddenly, you know, no longer had to worry about those things, I was worried about those things because it was just so part of who I was. 
Um, and in many ways, you know, the values I grew up with, many of them have served me very well and they continue to serve me well. But there's that sort of existential question when all of a sudden you've had this fantasy come true and you're still, mm -hmm. you know, living as though you were, you know, barely able to kind of get your bank account in order. So, and the other piece there, I guess, is, you know, growing up believing a little bit like those people who have a lot of money are different than than us who don't and kind of confronting that you know what actually eight out of ten people with wealth grew up middle class or poor so they are you and they've gotten lucky and they're still human beings and they're and and you know a one of my worries was like oh you know is all this money going to make me obnoxious or Mm -hmm. Or, you know, aloof, because those were the images I had in my head. So I had to grapple with that, too, and realize, well, actually, I'm I'm not, <laughs> you can ask my friends, we'll see. But, you know, I, I don't think that the money <laughs> has made me obnoxious. And actually, what I've learned is that money doesn't change you as much as you might expect. In fact, I feel like money reveals more of who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I love about the book. To me, the book, you know, it absolutely is a conversation about money. But for me, even in its earliest version that I read, I remember specifically saying there's a real hero's tale here, specifically with you trying to get to your own true home, that that state of comfort with what you had gotten in life. You know, you can you can achieve things and never be comfortable with it. We know this particularly with women. We can say, yes, but. Yes, but I still have that five mm. pounds. Yes, but I still don't like my fill in the blank, my ass, my hair, my whatever, you know, yes, but. So the idea of developing comfort with that when the comfort of your life is so abundant, to me, seemed like a real sort of hero's adventure. And, you know, people might think, well, that can't be so hard. Let me try that. I, that must be great. <laughs> but try writing about it, I say to people, because what you do is to describe and define some real identity challenges. And they only work because of what we mentioned before, that honesty. So those identity challenges, did you identify them as you were writing? Did you know going into that that this is where you were going to have to go? They can be really huge obstacles to writers writing about challenges to one's identity. Can you just give us some sense about how you identified those and, and then how you assigned yourself the task of reporting on, on how they were challenged and changed? Yeah. So, I, you know, one of the things that happened to me while I was writing is, and I've heard this happens to people, but it's sort of like the story was guiding me and telling me things. I was learning from my own writing, which seems very strange, but no, even thinking me. about, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you know this, and actually you were helpful in, in helping me kind of make sure that the character that I was writing about, which is me, kind of had this nice arc. And so that was very helpful when, mm -hmm. when we worked together. But one of the things, you know, for example, realizing my husband joined this small unknown bookstore that was selling books on the internet that ended up being Amazon and the company went public. This is the same moment really that our first child was born. And I remember this curtain lifted for me as I entered motherhood and I thought, this is in amazing and incredible and I can't believe how much I love this baby. And I joined a mother's group and 
all of us new moms really bonded over all these ups and downs and experiences of like, should we let our baby cry it out or how should we use a pacifier and how's breastfeeding and how are your in-laws? There were so many issues that we had in common and that we shared. And I was in this amazing connected world. And at the same time, I realized there's this other curtain that's lifted and suddenly we have more money than we can wrap our heads around and that world is kind of a lonely, silent space where I wasn't talking to anybody about all these things that were coming up for me. I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, the, the wealthy only worry about people liking them for their money. But I wasn't worried about being liked for what we had. I was worried about being hated for it. And I didn't want anyone to know. And sort of diving into the realizing, wow, how difficult that was for me at that time. And I write about this in the book, kind of that experience of being part of that mother's group and wanting to share and feeling so connected, but then also worrying that people wouldn't think that I could relate to their experiences when I felt just like them. I still was my same self. And you know, <laughs> the most important thing to me was was that baby and our connection and I wanted to be part of the group, but when they were talking about what stroller to buy and how expensive it was, I felt like I couldn't join in because I was worried about being judged and and having people you know look and look at me different. I mean, I tried to keep our money a secret at that time, and that was mm-hmm. you know when you have something in your life that you're trying to hide and keep secret, that's not that's not a good place to be. It's not, and. The, the idea of it being bounty is particularly complicated. And what I found fascinating, what I, one of the things I love about the story is how charity helped shape this acceptance and, and change. And not that you just found a place to dump a lot of money and feel good about it, but that it gave you a place to reflect, that it helped meld a more nuanced personality and character with the acceptance and responsibility of what money can do. And you and your husband have done some really magnificent things with your money these days in terms of giving back that I found as much a part of the story as anything else. So can you just talk a little bit about how you write about charity in with that kind of truthfulness? You know, you really write about it in a very nuanced way. It's not just, and then we gave away half our money and we feel much better. It's not that (laughs) at all. It was really a, a reflection point and a learning place. Mm-hmm. You know, just as we all have a money story that sort of starts in our childhood, I think we kind of learn about giving and charity in our childhood, or we don't learn about it. And, you know, I didn't really learn about it growing up. My my mom and I took canned peaches to food drives, and we took clothes to the Goodwill, but I didn't ever learn about giving financial donations. And that didn't start until I was part of Microsoft and gave a percentage of my paycheck to United Way. And then I began to give back to places that had given to me, like we gave to NPR, we gave to my mother's group that was organized by a nonprofit. And there was a period of time where I really wanted to do more. I felt a responsibility and an obligation and a desire to do more, but I was overwhelmed because I thought I had to do it right. I had to do it perfectly. I uh, wasn't sure where to give, how to give, you know, who to give to. I felt like I needed a plan. It was, it was more overwhelming than people might guess. And I came to sort of realize how, as you sort of can sit in a sense of gratitude, 
it becomes easy to just give from the heart, really, and to, to realize that giving is very expressive. It's expressive mm-hmm. of who you are. It's expressing your values. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much you give in terms of money. I think if we, we open our hearts to each other and give from the heart and do our best to help each other, you know, we can all feel that kind of sense of gratitude and, and generosity. And, and you know, it's been sort of a, a evolution. I mean, at first, you know, the thought of giving, you know, $5,000 felt like so much. But then just as I learned kind of to spend <laughs> and be okay, you know, paying for parking in a, in a, in a lot or, or buying the raspberries, I also learned about giving. And, and it, as I gave, I gave more and more. And it just feels like part of my life and it's something I feel very privileged to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So we... I couldn't help but notice in your uh, recent letter to the New York Times, you you had a letter to, letter to the editor published, in which you do a wonderful thing. You make a really good, solid criticism of the publishing industry, and I thought, you know, this she's got a book out, she's got a a dog in this fight at this point, and yet you clearly had a good look at what you were reading about the publishing industry in America, and you realized that. And one of the major publishers, 79% of the workforce was white and that the diversity wasn't there. And you teed up and wrote a piece and said what you had to say. So there seems to be a development of voice here um, that I don't know if you always had. Did writing the book make you feel that you had more of a, of, of a right, a privilege, a, a responsibility to comment on the injustices of, of life. You, you certainly could have left publishing out of this and just let them publish your book, but I was fa- kind of fascinated by, by teeing up that, that criticism, accurate as it is. But not everybody mm. would have done that with a book coming out. Thank you, I think. <laughs> I, yeah, I do feel, you know, it's interesting because, the, you know, as a writer, you have to, you, so the writing process is one thing, right? It's very internal and and, you know, contemplative and and you're alone and you're kind of spending time by yourself and then you know when the book was released you have to put on this very different hat suddenly you you are a voice and you have to be present and you have to be out there talking to people and figuring out what you you know what your message is and it's really just been in the last few weeks that the book has been out or like, you know, the kind of leading up to it and thinking about, you know, I'm going to be kind of on a book tour and what am I going to say and how am I going to present myself and how do I want, what what are my goals? So it's been the mm-hmm. process of kind of thinking through, you know, okay, I am getting published that I've, I have found my voice in a way that, that feels more powerful than I would have guessed um, six months ago. And I mean, my goal really is to help us talk about a subject that all of us need to be talking about. And part of that is to help kind of the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up or more money than others in their extended family or than their friends, help them kind of talk to each other and learn from each other. But I also, and this may sound far reaching, I also really hope that these conversations can help us fight income inequality. I'm not happy with where we are as a society. I hate that there are so many people in our country going without, without health care, without housing, without food. 
know, there's an education crisis. I mean, we need to start talking to each other and I'm hoping to shake things up. I mean, our silence kind of keeps the status quo in place. Absolutely. You know, when there is a, a, a large and influential segment of our population that isn't talking to each other, you might think, oh, all wealthy people are just talking. No, we're not talking to each other. And we feel isolated because wealth can be isolating and we feel estranged. We're probably not at our most empathetic or generous. And we're, we're not necessarily holding ourselves accountable or inspired to make change. And I really, mm-hmm. I really hope that my book becomes a catalyst for conversation that sparks much-needed change in our country. Me too. I, and I think it can. And I think you did everything right. I, when, it, when the book first came out, I wrote a piece in one of my newsletters about here's a writer that did everything right. And you did. <laughs> the run-up to the publication, well, you, you did. I mean, I tell people all the time, write a short piece. Write it in some place like Psychology Today. Write something in the New York Times. You know, Write an op-ed. Write a letter to the editor. Write, 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 write. Get your platform out there. And let's talk about that for a minute, because you have a website, which is very lovely. It's very trim. It's not filled with extra stuff. It sells the book. And it's jenniferrisher.com, which I advise people to do. Get your name, make it clear what you're here to do, make sure I can get in touch with you, have a good regularized response to when I try to, you know, when people try to contact you. But you also set out to write some pieces and and I want to talk to you about that, that decision to write a piece for psychology today on wrestling with wealth. That was published in May 2020. So how did you decide what to pick from the book and when to deploy it in the run-up to the publication? All right, so I'll be honest with you. First of all, my book was supposed to launch in May. So that piece was mm-hmm. supposed to be timed to the release of the book. Um, and we changed the release date because of COVID, which I'm very glad we did. And so Psychology Today, I hired a publicist and she started working on kind of getting me out there and, and getting me to write articles because you're right, you need to, to you know, start that kind of conversation before the book kind of it's out. And so they approached me and they made the suggestion of, of doing sort of an excerpt um, in that chapter two where I talk about kind of my family and, and background. And um, mm-hmm. so they started it out. And then it was actually, it was actually a great process because I really felt I, I, I wrote and I sent it in and they gave me suggestions. And so it went back and forth several times. And I think it turned out nicely and it ended up being really great to have that piece out there maybe a little bit longer than I than I might have chosen. I thought the book would come right out, but having that out there and, and being able to kind of point to it as I was talking about the book was helpful. Yeah, I, I always advise people to test your ideas on the public. So in terms of your publisher jumping back the publication date of your book, but having that piece out there, I think was deeply helpful. And it mm-hmm. is many people do hire a publicist um, for either a limited run or a more substantial run for help and contacts so that we can start to pepper the publications with your work. And then we can build some interest for the book. I also like the fact that you you told it short. It was a two-minute memoir. It's one of Psychology Today's signature things. And it allowed you to just, it got it all in there. 
And it suggested to the reader that there was more, you know, it got all of my interest in there, but it, it suggests to the reader that there's more, which is exactly what you want to do is to tee up the reader for the interest in the book. So nicely done. And the platform that you've created for yourself, again, is very tight. It's not a big website. It's, you're not blogging. You're just, it's pretty, it's smart. You've got the book cover. Uh, did you get advice from, a, I'm assuming you got just professional advice on that. You know, just give people, young writers, maybe first book. This is your first book. Give, just mm-hmm. give somebody a little bit of sense of, of what the advice was you got on how to represent yourself online, please. You know, I didn't get it. That was me. <laughs> so I, I like simple. I like direct. Oh, good. I, yeah, it's, it's, you know, simple and direct. I looked at a ton of websites. I just went to all sorts of author websites and I could see what I didn't like and what I did like. Mm-hmm. And the simpler, the better. And the more straightforward, cleaner. Then I like went through the process of hiring a website designer. And again, I talked to the people, I, I interviewed people and found one that I would highly recommend. And I loved working with her. And she's been a great relationship. And I'm really happy with my website. Yes, I, I really focused on I want the book up front. I want to give people links to how to buy it give you know a brief summary of the book I, I included some of the endorsements on that and then I have a lit page for press a page for events mm-hmm. and just really kept it simple everyone will tell you <laughs> that you have to have this social media presence and I, I'm not a big fan of, of social media I'm now putting up with Facebook just because I have this book out but <laughs> I don't like it. I mean, I thought it was wonderful when I first got on Facebook and I could kind of connect with people, but I don't think it's a it's a healthy space to be in. And I certainly don't like Twitter. I think that's very aggressive. And it's not, I'm certainly not going to say anything um, about wealth and money on Twitter because that's a, a, a no-win place to be. So mm-hmm. I, I tell people, and I, and I guess I maybe did get this advice because I thought, oh my gosh, do I have to get on Instagram? Do I have to kind of build, you know, all my friends and all this? And I, and someone said, you know, if it doesn't feel in sync with who you are, no, you don't have to do it. And I think, I think that is, a, you know, my recommendation to people is like, stay true to who you are. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right for you. Listen to your intuition. Trust it. Good. I think that's exactly right because so many people, especially some of the people that I that I know that are a bit older, the idea of going off on Instagram um, is uncomfortable. And you're right, a conversation about wealth on Twitter could be certainly defined as unproductive right now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as we start to turn for home on this, one of the things that I love that came out of your life and that we get from reading your stuff is that you and your husband, David, have founded, well, your husband is the CEO of World Reader, a nonprofit he co-founded with a mission to create a world where everyone is a reader. And you and he launched Half My DAF. And so I need you to just, I I see these as, the book publicizes those, those publicize the book. The Psychology Today piece kind of starts it off, the letter to the editor. All of these are part of a piece, but they're very interconnected to me. And I would just like you to explain to people what half my DAF, or maybe you say half my DAF, maybe that's it, mm-hmm. it's the rhyme, right? Mm-hmm. Half my DAF, um, what, what the DAF stands for and what it is that ultimately has come out of this, this new home that you find yourself in. What, what is that? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Now let me, I will answer that question, but I do want to say, you know, you know, I've been asked, like, how do you use your wealth for good? 
And I've thought a lot about that. And I, I think the real question is, how do you use your life for good? And we have wealth as a tool that is a, an amazing tool that has given us time and, and resources. But, you know, how do we build a life that, that's meaningful and that, that does feel like it has purpose? And so my husband, yeah, he co-founded and is the CEO and works uh, full, full, full time on World Reader to get digital books into the hands of kids in the developing world. And he's coming to the United States and he's spent the last 10 years of his life 100% focused on this nonprofit. And I've spent a lot of time reading or writing and I'm now out talking about my book. So it's living, it's it's trying to be the best person you can be. And so with half my DAF, DAF stands for Donor Advised Fund. And what a donor advised fund is, it's a it's a charitable vehicle. So let's say you have your you have some event in your life and you have some extra money or you want to put some money aside for giving, you can put it into a, a donor advised fund and you get a tax break up front. And then it allows you to organize your giving so you can kind of give over time. It's sort of like a charitable checking account. So in a way, it's a, it's a very nice vehicle. But what's happened is that people are opening these donor advised funds they're putting their money in, they're getting their tax break, but then they're not moving the money through. They're not putting that money to work to help people. And a bunch of money is stuck in donor-advised funds. And actually, $120 billion is stuck in donor-advised oh, funds. That is and a bunch of money. It's tragic. So, you know, actually, when COVID struck and my husband and I were thinking, what can we do? We want to help People, we want to help nonprofits who who are no longer able to raise the money they need, and they're 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 working harder than ever. And that you know, we want to give to nonprofits, and we were going to give just ourselves, but we realized you know if we put up a million dollars as a way to inspire others to give with us, and we asked people to half their DAF take spend mm-hmm. out at least half of the money that's in their donor advised fund. We will match grants wherever people want to give. We don't care. Give, give, give. That was our message. And so it was really rewarding because we got um, in five months, our million helped move $8.6 million into nonprofits, helping nonprofits in you know all sorts of you know the environmental, community, food banks, racial justice issues. Uh, it, it was it was everywhere and it was so wonderful to hear from donors, hear from nonprofits, to feel a sense of community building. And donors told us, you know, this is the nudge I needed. And they said, you know, we're sitting around the dinner table now talking with our adult kids about what we value, where we want to give. We're having money conversations that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And nonprofits mm-hmm. are also like, you know, so grateful that this is, you know, that we're pushing more giving. And the nice thing of there is that nonprofits are starting to build better relationships with donors, because in the end, it really is all about building those relationships. So yes, it is. thanks for asking. Yeah, it's been a, a really wonderful way to give back and to, to kind of help boost our community right now it's when there's so much need. Well, it's wonderful. And I love that there's a book at the center of it. And I think that that says a great deal to everyone in terms of inspiring what books can do, what a writer can learn while she's spending 14 years throwing titles around in her head, you know, getting behind each of them, but really pushing into her own story 
she may reveal many things and what may come out of them may surprise us. But one of the things that came out of all of this is this remarkable generosity and thoughtful purpose of life. And uh, thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me today, Jennifer. I'm, I'm really grateful to hear from you again. And I'm just, I'm just damn happy for the book. So congratulations. Thank you so much. You're absolutely welcome. So that was Jennifer Risher and her new book, We Need to Talk, A Memoir About Wealth, was just published by Zeno Books and is available wherever books are sold. See more about her at jenniferrisher.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen wherever you go. 